Today's reading is taken from the Gospel of John, chapter 4, verses 43 to the end. So it's John 4, 43 to the end. After the two days, he left for Galilee. Now Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honor in his own country. When he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. They had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, for they had also been there. Once more he visited Cana in Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine. And there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son, who was close to death. Unless you people see signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. The royal official said, Sir, come down before my child dies. Go, Jesus replied, your son will live. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. While he was still on the way, his servants met him with the news that his boy was living. When he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, Yesterday, at one in the afternoon, the fever left him. Then the father realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. So he and his whole household believed. This was the second sign Jesus performed after coming from Judea to Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. Thank you very much for the reading and really lovely to see so many of you here in the church building and hello and good morning to those of you who are joining in at home with us now or at a later time. We are going to feast on this story, this word of God together. I was at one of those um, parties last weekend in someone's garden where we're like being sold makeup face products and the sales consultant came around and squirted a bit of like face wash on our hands and asked us to smell it and asked what we could smell in this face wash and I immediately smelled ginger which I really loved and I was like ooh ginger and then somebody else smelled like eucalyptus which is completely different and somebody smelled green tea which is also completely different and it turned out all these different things were there and she said to us that you will smell the ingredient that your body sort of needs to take in now, I have no idea if that's scientifically based or not, <laughs> but I smell ginger and I love ginger, so I'm going to assume that I needed some ginger in my life. <laughs> I'm hoping that um, there, the variety of messages and truths and glimpses of who God is um, will shine out from this story and that you will take in the aroma of God that you need to take in this morning. That will be unique to each of you. So let's just pray as we look at this story together. 
Oh Lord God, here we are. Here we are this Sunday morning gathered for a variety of reasons. We come in a variety of states, God. Some of us tired, some of us excited about something, some of us just pleased to be sitting here with your people and your presence. Some of us with our minds elsewhere. But all of us, Lord, deeply in our truest selves, longing to see you and meet you and know you afresh and anew today. So we ask that you would give us the grace to be open, to have the, the sensitivity of our sensors alert and ready to feel the brush of your spirit, to hear your truth. Would you come and minister to each of us this morning, dear Lord Jesus? Amen. Amen. So here we are at the end of John chapter 4. And just as a little bit of a reminder as to where we've been through the Gospel of John already, we're going to have a little bit of a look at the map to see where Jesus has been on his journeys. So if we could just get that map up. Thanks, guys. Um, John, uh, John's Gospel starts, John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. We have this kind of theoretical chapter 1, and then in chapter 2, we move into these real encounters. So Jesus' first uh, sort of miracle, turning the water into wine at Cana in Galilee. And you can see on the map that we have here on the screen, as you know, Jesus grew up in Nazareth. Um, his first miracle was at that wedding in Cana, where surely almost everyone in his community was quite familiar with that community in Cana. Then at the end of chapter 2, John chapter 2, the community traveled together down to Jerusalem to observe the Passover together. At that time, as Jesus is launching into his ministry, um, John gives us the story of Jesus clearing the temple, starting to teach, starting to make an authoritative name for us, for himself, starting to perform some miracles and draw some attention. And then after that long conversation he has with Nicodemus about being born again, uh, he then um, travels back up through Samaria, where he meets the woman at the well on his way home. And then we get to our story as he comes back up into the Galilean region, up that northern bit, um, where we enter into this moment at the end of John chapter 4. So let's start with John chapter 4, verses, verse 44. Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honor in his own country. When he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. Now this verse is a little bit funny. It feels to be a little bit at odds with itself because the first half is kind of reminding us that um, it's difficult to go home as a prophet and then the second half is saying they welcomed him. So I just want to talk a little bit about what that dynamic might be about. It may be that um, this is referring to the fact that Jesus didn't come and stop in Nazareth, but carried on up to Galilee, if you remember that map, uh, up to Cana. Cana is a little bit north of, of Nazareth. You'll remember in Luke chapter 4 that um, we have the story of Jesus standing up in the synagogue in his hometown of Nazareth and proclaiming that, that messianic prophecy from Isaiah, the spirit of the Lord is upon me, he's anointed me to preach good news, and then saying, today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing, proclaiming himself to be the Messiah and in his hometown amongst those who have known and seen and loved and cared and been around him since he was a toddler and a boy and a teenager 
this proclamation that he might be the Messiah is just way too much for them. It's too blasphemous. It's too audacious. They are too familiar with the Jesus that they know. Is this not Joseph's son? They say, how can this guy, who we know so well, be proclaiming that? They're so offended that they literally try to drive him off the edge of a cliff. Quite dramatic. Um, and I think, you know, it's, it's interesting, isn't it, this sense of being so familiar with somebody that we can't quite see them for who we are. And I think our brains do do that. We, tr we tend to sort of make decisions about people. Oh, she's really dramatic. Or, oh, he's really slow or whatever it is and kind of tie them up and leave them there and I'm sure some of you have been on the receiving end of that and not particularly appreciated it at times and Jesus was certainly on the receiving end of that in Jerusalem he can't uh, in Nazareth sorry I'm running on a pretty low battery so please be gracious with me when I mess up my words this morning that won't be the last time it happens I'm sure so um yeah, there's this sense of like being so familiar with some, somebody that you can't really see the fullness of who they are. And I just wonder if maybe we are even at danger ourselves of, of doing that to Jesus, of being quite so familiar with Jesus, with these stories, with the gospel, with these Christian words, these Christian ideas, that we stop seeing them, that we stop seeing the vibrancy and the life and the glory that is still radiating out anew in them every day. Now, um, I forgot to tell you about your bits of paper. Let's pick up our bits of paper. What I wanted to invite you to do whilst you're listening this morning is actually just to doodle just while you're listening. Just let your pen move across your page. If you're at home, if you want to grab a minute and go grab a bit of paper and a pen, any pen, any type of pen will do. There's no right or wrong here. Yeah, so you're just invited to to draw, to, to let shapes, abstract shapes, concrete shapes, pictures come out of your pen whilst you're listening. So um, there's no right or wrong here. Nobody's going to be looking if the concept of pictures and shapes makes you want to curl up, write down words, words that seem significant. So just let your pen move whilst you're listening. This isn't about what comes out of your pen. This is about the process of letting it come through you and through your hand as you listen. Okay, so maybe that's what this sort of at-odds verse is about. Jesus was leaving Jerusalem, was bypassing Nazareth to go up to Cana, where he might not be quite so boxed up in terms of who he was seen to be. Eugene Peterson has a slightly different interpretation, and he reads, he writes these verses like this in the message translation. Now, Jesus knew well from experience that a prophet is not respected in the place where he grew up. So when he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, but only because they were impressed with what he had done in Jerusalem during the Passover feast. Not that they really had a clue about who he was or what he was up to. So there's this real dynamic in this passage and kind of through these first few verses of John where Jesus is grappling with the, the reality that people are starting to be attracted to his miracles, to the incredible things that he's doing. But they're coming to him for this kind of glitzy, glamorous, sensational outcome of his work and not because of who he is and the heart and the purpose of his work. And Jesus is wrestling with that. 
he's struggling with that. So in John 2:23, when he was at Jerusalem, at the temple, it says, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them. So there's this sense here that um, Jesus is feeling a bit frustrated. He's new to his ministry. He's trying to figure out how to handle this. And he's feeling um, almost disappointed that people enjoy this kind of entertainment value of something dramatic happening or this sort of dopamine rush of something whizzy happening. But they're not really seeing the heart, the purpose, the truth of who he is. I've been reading a book about um, the life and teaching of Teresa of Avila with a few amazing young women recently. And these words really caught my attention. I think we have them to go up on the screen for you. This is paraphrasing Teresa's words, and this is about prayer. If a person fails to consider who it is they're talking to, what they're asking for, or who they are that they dare to speak to God. I don't consider what they're doing as prayer, no matter how much they move their lips. I'll read that again. If a person fails to consider who it is they're talking to, what they're asking for, or who they are that they dare to speak to God, I don't consider what they're doing as prayer. And I think there's something in this dynamic that Jesus is wrestling with. People are coming to him, but not because they have a deep and uh, thoughtful understanding of who he is. And that's frustrating for Jesus. So we find Jesus back in Cana at Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine. And um, John kind of has this tidy little set where he does... He highlights the first sign at Cana, and then he highlights the second sign at Cana here at the end of chapter 4. And so here we are in Cana at Galilee in John 46. Once more he visited Cana in Galilee where he turned the water into wine, and there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son who was close to death. So if we could just have our map back up. Sorry, Martin, I'm giving you a real run for your money this morning. Or Lars, thank you to our amazing team who makes all this happen back there. This royal official had come from Capernaum, which is down at the, de- at the Sea of Galilee. And he travels up to Cana because he hears that Yeshua, this rabbi who's doing all these signs, is there. And he thinks, perhaps he can help me. Now, the distance between Capernaum and Cana is about 15 or 20 miles. Um, Capernaum is well below sea level, and Cana is kind of up in the hills. So we're talking about sort of a five, six, seven-hour walk with about 500-meter climb. So it's a bit of a journey. He takes the guts of a day to get there. So who is this guy? A royal official. It's likely that this is somebody who works in the court of Herod Antipas, the Roman person who's been put in charge of this Galilean region. Um, And we don't know anything about him other than that. 
It's possible that he was a Gentile, a Roman himself. It's possible that he was a Jew. If you heard me speak on Palm Sunday, we talked about the fact that there were plenty of folks within Jewish culture and society at that time who were a little bit more secular, a little bit more wealthy socioeconomically, um, and much more influenced by Greek and Roman culture. And so it would be entirely possible that somebody in this category might be employed by Herod Antipas, might have a role in his court in one way or another. And I would probably myself feel that it's more likely that this royal official is, is a Jewish person because when he comes, Jesus speaks to him as though he's part of the Jewish culture. He says, this generation is just looking for signs and wonders, kind of grouping him with all these other Jews, Hebrews who have been drawn by the signs. And Jesus is still kind of in this slight sort of brain fog of frustration and not knowing how to deal with the fact that folks are coming for the wrong reason and sees this man with his wealthy clothes coming and just thinks, you just are here for another sensationalist sign. So, coming back to our Teresa of Avila quote, if a person fails to consider who it is they're talking to, Jesus is now assuming that this guy doesn't know who he's talking to, what they're asking for or who they are. Now, what this man is asking for is crystal clear. He wants the healing of his son. And we've had a little look at who he might be sort of culturally and socially and politically, but in this moment, who he is is primarily a father who is desperately, deeply desirous of healing for his son. That is primarily who he is. And the best thing that he knows to do with this love, this tenderness, this profound desire for his healing, this fear that he has of losing him, is to make this journey across hills, to ask, actually no, the text says, to beg this teacher, this Rabbi Yeshua, to come and do whatever he can for his son. And I wonder if you can relate to this sense, this instinct of loving somebody so deeply and so tenderly and so profoundly that you would do anything and go anywhere and ask anyone for whatever they might have that could help them. I just want to take a brief aside here and point out a pattern that emerges in John's gospel about the kind of people that Jesus engages with. Um, in John chapter two or three, he has that long three, he has that long conversation with Nicodemus. And here we see Jesus engaging with Nicodemus, who socially is a very high standing from a religious point of view. Next, at the beginning of chapter four, we see Jesus engaging with the Samaritan woman, a foreign woman who has a slightly um, questionable past, who's not Jewish, who's female. Jesus engages with somebody of very low social and religious standing. And now we have Jesus engaging with this man who's a very high standing in a secular way, in a secularly political way, a very high standing. And then at the beginning of chapter five, we have Jesus engaging with the man who's been lying by the pool for years and years, waiting to be healed. Again, someone of very low standing. 
And in this pattern, we see the complete and utter range of humans that Jesus is happy to meet and to engage with. And I wonder if you have any sort of quiet and rising voices from yourself that tell you that you are too something, fill in the blank, to be worthy of Jesus' love. I wonder if there are any voices within you that say, actually, you, you're a little bit too for Jesus' love. I have a word that comes to mind. It may well be that you have your own word that comes to mind. And personally, I find this pattern, this, this arc of the story that shows me that actually there's really no human thing that is outside of the scope of Jesus' interest that precludes any of us from Jesus' love. And I hope that that might be of some comfort to you. You are not outside of the scope of Jesus' love. Okay, coming back to our text. Right, we are now coming into the really, the heart, the crux, the amazing nugget of this whole story. Um, so let me just find it where I'm at in my notes. Here we are. John chapter 4, 49 to 50. Now, we have this exchange, these three brief pieces of dialogue back and forth that are so powerful, so charged, so life-changing, so intense. I really want to look at them piece by piece with you. After Jesus has said, you're just here for signs and wonders, I don't want to know anything about it, this royal official comes up to Jesus and he says again, with such intention, with such wholeheartedness, sir, come down before my child dies. Now we don't know exactly what tone of voice he used. I'm sure any good actor could come up with a range of 15 or 20 tones of voice he might have used for this. He could have been whining, he could have been very authoritative, but I have to believe that something here, something in this tone of voice completely shifted Jesus' regard of this man. And actually, everything that happens in this story actually happens in the silence between verses 49 and 50. Between this request, come down before my child dies. And then, in that silence, in that gap between the words, everything happens. What does Jesus do? Can we imagine the posture of the royal official? Can we imagine his body language? Can we imagine the look of sincerity on his face? And then can we see Jesus return that gaze? Suddenly Jesus' eyes are open and he sees past his fine clothing, past his social standing. He sees into his heart. He sees his desire. He sees his fear. He sees his love. He sees his motivation. He sees his hope. He sees his intent and his focus and his trust in Jesus with this most precious thing. And in this moment, somehow Jesus perhaps even sees that child on his bed 20 miles away and he changes the story. Something shifts. How Jesus does it, I do not know. But I wonder if you can see in your mind's eye Jesus' posture, Jesus' profound eye contact with this man. He looks straight into him and he says, go, your child will live. Your child will live. And this word live comes from this Greek word, I think it's, 
in, I think we would say J, I'm not a Greek scholar. I wish I was, but I'm not. J, which we would spell in English Z-E. And it's this word life. It's the same word. It's repeated a few times. Your son will live, will have this life. It's the same word we have in Romans. Um, I no longer live, but Christ lives, J, in me. This life. Um, it comes, the, our our name Zoe means life. It comes from this same Greek word. I know our Zoe and our church family was named for this meaning of life. Your son will live. And I can't help but think in this profound exchange, this moment of energy that's happening between these two, when he says that something drops into this royal official, into this father, into his heart, and blossoms, becomes alive. This word of life drops into his heart, and he believes. He believes it has happened. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. Or in the literal translation, the man believed the word. What a powerful word. And I see that word dropping into his heart, sort of coming alive, blossoming, blooming, and then flowing like a river, not only through this man's heart, but into his son's body who is healed. And then as we'll see from the, the rest of the story, this whole household comes to believe in Jesus, this word of life. Verses 51 to 53, the man sets off on his way home. And while he's still on his way, his servants meet him with the news that his boy is Jay, living alive. And when he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, yesterday at one in the afternoon, his fever left him. And the father realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, your son will live. So he and his whole household believed. The mind-blowing timing and power of this miracle is completely life-changing for all of them. And again, we just have this sense of this river of life that flows out through Jesus, again, through this man's heart, through his son's body, out into his whole household. And I hope that it can flow through us, this river of life can flow through each of us, that we can each be alive with the word of God flowing in and through and out of us. I just want to make one final point before we have some time of prayer. Um, some scholars point out that there's sort of a bit of a formula in this text, sort of the steps that this, rap, this um, young royal official go through. Go, ask, rebuke, persist, and it's like these steps that happen in order for the miracle to happen. And I guess I just want to say that I shy away from this sense of sort of seven steps to spiritual fulfillment, or if I step through these, jump through these hoops, or tick these ticks boxes, then Jesus' healing will be made present in my life. I think the reason I shy away from it is that uh, as Kate Bowler, the beautiful, wonderful teacher Kate Bowler has been reminding me, that there's this sense um, in prosperity gospel teaching that good things happen to good people and good people deserve good outcomes. And of course, 
everybody deserves good outcomes. But all of us know all too near to our hearts that unthinkably absurd and heartbreaking things also happen to the best and dearest of people. And while it would be such a relief to be able to think that I could do X, Y, Z and avoid pain and avoid heartbreak, and also if I could do X, Y, Z, then those fearful things within me that rise and say that I'm not good enough might somehow be annulled or counterbalanced. I don't really think that's exactly how it works. Now, I'm by no means saying that we should throw out our faithfulness, our devotion to prayer and giving and fasting and feasting and acts of mercy. But if we rely on these things as tokens of our worthiness or trust them as hoops that will somehow earn us our righteousness, then I think we've missed the point as much as the generation who is looking for signs and wonders. Because life in Christ is not uh, a promise that we'll live without pain or without heartbreak. But life in Christ does offer us the presence of the Holy One. It does offer us those profound exchanges and that true and deep companionship that can walk with us, that can nourish, nourish us through even the darkest of times. What we are given is a companionship that looks deep into yourself and says, I see you, I know you, I love you, I am with you. There's an exchange of presence. There will be gifts. There will at times be mind-blowing and bonkers miracles. There will be signs of hope and there will always be signs of life. J, life. So we're just going to take a moment to be quiet. Um, if you have been writing or doodling, I just want to invite you to have a little look over that page. And just notice from the things that you scribbled, if there might be one thing on that page that's helpful, that particularly catches your attention or speaks to you in some way this morning, through which the Lord might be wanting to nourish you today. there is something there, I just invite you to take that in as a little gift. I also just want to give you a moment to imagine yourself standing in front of the Lord and perhaps having the time to say whatever it is that's most deeply on your heart just now. Maybe it's about somebody you dearly love for whom you desperately want healing and life. Maybe it's about a part of yourself for which you desperately want healing and life.
whether the Lord feels very present and alive and real or somewhat distant and hard to connect with just now. I invite you to reiterate in your own mind and heart the trust that you have in our Lord. To name it. And to entrust yourself and all those who are dear to you to his good presence. Amen.